Welcome to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast, where we talk to computer scientists who immigrated from their home countries for study or for work or for other reasons. In these oral history interviews, you will find established and renowned computer scientists from across academia and industry narrating their experiences of immigrating from where they grew up to a completely different land, often the US. My name is Indy Gupta, and I'm your host. This is episode 15. Today's episode is unlike the others we have had on this podcast. Like our previous episodes on this podcast, we have true stories of immigrants who are prominent computer scientists in today's episode. Unlike our other episodes, however, all our narrators in this episode will remain anonymous. So you'll hear their stories in my voice. All our narrators are originally from different countries in the world, and all of them are currently in the US. This episode has three acts. Act one is a real person. Act two is a composite person. Act three is another real person. Here we go. Act one. Even accomplished people in their field have to go through a difficult time after immigrating to the US. Let me warm you up with a short story of someone who is not a computer scientist. This story is also evidence that many struggles that immigrant computer scientists face in their lives and careers are also faced by immigrants who are not computer scientists and who are in other fields. Akram, his name is changed, was an immigrant who left his home country Afghanistan a few years ago, a bit before the arrival of the Taliban caused Afghanistan to descend into chaos. Akram is currently in the US. Akram was a filmmaker in Afghanistan. He made feature films, full-length movies. In Afghanistan, Akram had already directed and made two movies, not just in his native languages, but also in a couple of foreign languages. One of his films won a prestigious award at a European film festival. Then he left for the US in 2019. Here in the US in 2021, today, Akram often makes a living by driving Uber and Lyft cars. He has been able to make no movies so far and is still talking to people here to get a lead, to get support, to get into the in crowd for making movies. Akram told me that movie making in the US appears to be controlled by a small select group of people, a coterie that is very, very selective. You see, he explained, movie making is a very expensive affair. Making high quality movies with high quality video and audio needs funding. And he said you get funding only if you get with the in crowd. In the meantime, his family, his siblings and parents are still stuck back in Afghanistan, trying to get out, trying to find their way out via a neighboring country. His sister just finished her engineering degree from a university in Afghanistan. But the Taliban's stance against women in Afghanistan means Akram's sister has no chance of getting a job in Afghanistan. She is stuck at home fresh from a degree with lots of energy to do good for her country, but nowhere to place that energy and her newly acquired skills. Akram's brother also finished his degree recently as well. And right after he graduated, the Taliban arrived in Kabul. No jobs for his brother either. The struggle of Akram and his family continues. 
across two countries and continents, as does the plight of many refugees and immigrants from Afghanistan. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast. You're listening to episode 15, titled Anonymous, featuring several anonymous stories of immigrants and immigrant computer scientists. Act 2. Many native-born Americans are unaware of the immigration experiences and vagaries that their colleagues have to go through just to stay in a legal immigration status in the U.S., If you were never an immigrant, if you were born in this country, the anonymous experiences I narrate below are experiences that you may never have heard about. Your own colleagues, immigrant colleagues, might be going through or might have already been through such experiences. And they may choose never to talk about it, so you wouldn't know. If you were an immigrant or are an immigrant, however, you very likely will identify with many elements of what I'm about to narrate. Before I start, a disclaimer. I'm not a lawyer, so everything I narrate in the following segment is based on stories I've heard and my own experiences as an immigrant and information that I've found on the web, all in the 1990s through the 2020s. Immigration law changes very dramatically and very quickly, so for the most correct and up-to-date information on immigration, please check the latest websites of the USCIS, the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. Anyway, here we go. All immigrants have to get a visa. When you're a student, it's often an F-1 visa. When you work, it could be a H-1B visa, which is uh, a common visa that uh, is valid for about six years that people get. Other types of visas also exist. The USCIS website has the latest list and information about all these other kinds of visas. For this story, though, we'll stay with the H-1B visa, a common visa that many computer scientists tend to get right after they graduate with a degree and uh, when they start working. That's usually what many have when they're working in a company or working as a researcher or working as a faculty member in a university. The following is based on the experiences of many and uh, myself. Now, a visa usually consists of getting two things, permission to stay in the country, in the U.S., And after that, a visa stamp on your passport. The first, the permission, is needed to stay legal in the U.S. And that's needed first. The second, the stamp on the passport, is required so that you can re-enter or enter the U.S. Without the stamp, you can check out from the U.S. and leave any time you like. But you cannot come back in to the U.S. So you need a visa stamp to re-enter the U.S. Hope you're with me so far. Now, the tricky thing is that the visa stamp requires you to apply at and visit a U.S. embassy or consulate. And here's where it gets trickier. U.S. embassies and consulates exist only outside the U.S. So many visa holders already in the U.S. and already in legal status have to occasionally, every few years, make the trek to a U.S. embassy or consulate outside the U.S. just to get the visa stamp on their passport. The visa stamp expires after a few years. This stamp, getting the stamp rather, is not guaranteed, however. Here's where our composite character Antonio comes in. Antonio's story below is a composite of multiple experiences I've heard about over the past 20 years, and it's not a single person. Antonio was already in legal visa status in the US and working a full-time job, but his visa stamp had expired, 
His visa status was fine and was valid for several years more. So he needed to get his visa stamp renewed, needed to get a new visa stamp. So Antonio decided to make the trek to a U.S. embassy in a neighboring country of the U.S. rather than going all the way back to his own origin country, just a neighboring country because it was faster. But this third country wasn't Antonio's home country. Well, that's just a couple of days hotel stay, Antonio guessed. As the embassy website said, most visas are granted the same day. When he went to the embassy, Antonio was well prepared with all the documentation, all the fees, all the paperwork. At the visa counter, the consulate official looked at Antonio's application for a while, looked at him, and told him that his case would now have to be put on security clearance. As many immigrants on H-1B visas know, this phrase, security clearance, is a rather dreaded phrase. It's also sometimes known as administrative processing, or security advisory opinion, or SAO, or security check, or just security clearance. In any case, a security clearance initiates a long security check by several agencies stateside, including the FBI. And this series of checks is a black box. One has no way of discovering what is going on behind the curtains, what is being checked, how long it will take. The security clearance could take days, it could take weeks, it could take months, and sometimes it's taken years. In the meantime, Antonio is stuck in this third country. His passport is with the U.S. Embassy until God knows when. Antonio could decide to get his passport back, but that often means Antonio is withdrawing his application for the visa and would then have to return to his home country, his origin country. In the meantime, Antonio's job in the U.S. calls and is continuing. Now, in the present day, when remote work has become common, this may seem like not such a big problem. But in the 1990s, 2000s, 2010s, and in normal times, really, this meant Antonio would be unable to work, to teach, to be with his students, to be with his startup, to be with his colleagues, to be at his desk where he was needed by his company. While they waited for the visa stamp, because of the unpredictability of how long it might take, some Antonios were laid off. Other Antonios were fortunate to have their company and their co-workers back them. Experiences vary. When you're stuck on a security clearance, calling the USCIS does not help. They are not obligated to tell the applicant anything at all. No status updates. In fact, reportedly, the only persons who are authorized to get any answer from the USCIS about such a security clearance case are the local congressperson of where the applicant stays, and possibly the two senators from that state. As you can imagine, these offices are fairly busy as well. Getting through to them is often not easy. And of course, uh, having them act on behalf of the applicant is even harder, the applicant being an immigrant, a non-citizen. It may take weeks or months or years of waiting for these officers to be even convinced that this case is out of the ordinary and has gone on long enough for them to reach out to the USCIS. And even when they do reach out to the USCIS, again, there is no guarantee that they will hear back anything at all or anything will actually move forward quickly. Some members in our research community have been stuck on the dreaded security clearance for two weeks, some for a few months, and at least in one case, for a couple of years and more. For early career researchers and faculty, these can be killers of their budding careers. Now back to Antonio. After a wait of several weeks, or was it months? Anyway, Antonio finally received an email from the USCIS 
which he opened with trembling hands. It said, your visa has been approved. Please collect your passport tomorrow between these hours. At once, Antonio felt both elated and exhausted. A few days later, he was back in the U.S., back at his job, back at his home. He was one of the lucky ones. You might think, now there's a happy ending. Well, not so fast. Again, based on real experiences, a security clearance is known to leave a permanent scar on your passport, so to speak. First, the visa from a security clearance is shorter than an otherwise quite normal visa. The security clearance visa often lasts only one or two years, while regular visa stamps last up to three years. This means Antonio, with his uh, visa stamp, has to renew his visa stamp a little bit more frequently than the usual three years window that normal H-1B visa stamp holders have to do so. That's first. Second, and worse, the first security clearance taint also means that any time in the future Antonio wants to renew his visa stamp because he's already received a security clearance, he's been subject to the security clearance once, it's very likely that he will be subject to a security clearance again every single time he applies for a visa stamp in the future. Again, this is based on multiple experiences that I've heard over the years. You might think, why doesn't Antonio just get a green card? Well, for immigrants from certain countries, especially China, India, and Mexico, the wait times for green cards could be very, very long, five years to 15 years or even longer. Yes, even for well-placed and well-known academics. In November 2021, when I checked the USCIS visa bulletin, the wait time for green cards in one of the more prestigious categories, EB2, that's the employment-based category 2, was for an immigrant from China at least 3 years and for an immigrant from India at least 11 years. This means that if Antonio is from one of these countries, he has to keep renewing his H-1B visa status and also the visa stamp while he is waiting for his green card to be approved. And because Antonio got a security clearance, and quite frequently, like I said before, if Antonio's visa stamp has expired, he might very well decide to not take the risk of leaving the U.S. because of the high chance of a security clearance again for his next visa stamp application. In the meantime, if a family emergency occurs in Antonio's origin country, for instance, his parents fall ill and Antonio's visa stamp is expired, he's still in status, but his visa stamp is expired, Antonio is left now with the truly excruciating choice of either jeopardizing his U.S. immigration status by returning to his origin country, and therefore applying for the visa stamp again, and possibly getting a security clearance, or the choice of choosing to stay in the U.S. while his family back in his origin country still needs him. I've heard stories of both of these occurring, Antonio's who decided to return to their origin country, and again never to return to the U.S., and Antonio's who couldn't visit a dying relative, a dying parent even, because he feared he'd lose his immigration status and he'd lose his job in the U.S. And again, we are talking of highly educated Antonio's who received PhDs from top CS departments and top U.S. universities, and in some cases, Antonio's who hold jobs in major companies and are faculty in major universities.
This is episode 15 of the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast. This episode is titled Anonymous, featuring several anonymous stories of immigrants and immigrant computer scientists. Act 3. Our third story of this episode, Anonymous, is of Emma, name changed, a computer scientist who grew up in a country far from the US. This is a real person who is accomplished in the computer science research community. She chose to give her interview in background, and she gave me approval to narrate her story, but not use her voice. Here we go. Emma was born around 1980 and grew up in the 1980s and 1990s outside the US. She received her bachelor's and master's from one of the top universities in her home country and immediately immigrated to the US in the early 2000s for her PhD program. Emma received her PhD in the late 2000s and has since then been a professor of computer science at a leading US university. Emma's contributions have been recognized by many awards, both from the research community as well as industry, and today she leads many major research projects. Because the story is anonymous, Emma has not her real name, of course, and I won't even say which country she came from. Emma grew up in a small town in her home country. Her family was not rich. By age two or three years, though, Emma was famous among her townsfolk as she could do two-digit number calculations in her mind. The townsfolk played numbers, numbers with her, and during festivals, they would put her up on the stage for entertainment. She was precocious. But she wanted to be a nuclear physicist or a space physicist. Though her mother was a school teacher and her father encouraged her to read science fiction books, her parents also believed that women who are nuclear physicists cannot have children, so they discouraged her from taking to physics. Yet they sent her to physics camps every summer in school, where Emma always won awards for her skills and talents at physics. In fact, from age 9 to 16, her parents sent Emma to a special school that was far from her town, a school for gifted kids. Emma was the only student who lived from far away. So during the weekends and breaks, when all the other kids returned to their nearby homes, Emma had to stay in the school grounds, alone. She would play in the field by herself, all alone. She stayed in the empty dorms. Frequent power cuts meant that she was often alone in the dark. To keep her fears away, she started reading, by candlelight, science fiction books, the ones her dad had bought for her. In cold winters, Emma was put up in the teacher's dorms. She is grateful for that opportunity, but also has fearful memories of times when she almost set the dorm on fire by mistake by knocking over one of her candles. She had to rush to throw water on the fire. Imagine being alone in a huge building, being around 10 years of age, and being on the verge of mistakenly setting it on fire. Anyway, returning to Emma's family, Emma said that she's not so close with her mom. She thought the main reason her mom sent her to this faraway school was to increase the honor of the family in the eyes of their townsfolk. You see, in Emma's country, it was considered a shame to have a daughter, let alone two daughters. So Emma thinks her mom wanted to show to others that girls could do as well as boys. Emma had a younger sister who was bullied in the school, and Emma often defended her in fights. Returning to Emma and her mom's relationship, many years later when Emma was pregnant, her mom was overjoyed when she learned that it was going to be a boy. 
Her mom told Emma that Emma's biggest accomplishment in her life was giving birth to a son. Emma says her relations with her mother are still not close. Before I tell you about Emma's disillusionment with her country of origin, I want to say a little bit about how Emma turned from a would-be physicist into a computer scientist. Another story filled with chance. That's a story of immigration as well. Because of her physics medals in middle and high school, Emma had a chance to get an automatic admission at a nearby university. But Emma's grandma thought that Emma ought to go to a better university in a bigger town. So they waived the auto-admission and instead Emma wrote the national entrance exam. Alas, as luck would have it, Emma did not do well in that exam, by which uh, Emma meant that instead of scoring the usual 149 points out of 150, Emma scored 133 points out of 150. Now, because the majors decided based on your score in this exam, Emma went to a top university but got a major that she had never heard of before, linguistics and literature. Emma hated the literature part of the major. Fortunately, her faculty mentor noticed this and was instrumental in introducing Emma to a computational science professor. And these two faculty together designed a curriculum for Emma's science talents. Emma took Calculus 2, the course, before Calculus 1. She learned computer graphics before linear algebra. She learned many of the math and computer science courses before the other courses that she was supposed to take. Her first programming languages were BASIC, Pascal, and Ada. She taught herself many languages, including C++ and Java. Her advisor gave her the key to his lab. She got a paper accepted and published in computational science when she was just 19. Emma was able to reclaim her precociousness after the setback of her entrance exam performance many years ago. Before she knew it, Emma had become a computer scientist. Now back to Emma's school years and Emma's relations with her home country. Some countries have a mandatory military training for men. Emma said that her country had mandatory parading and sloganeering for both boys and girls. Emma said that they were forced to walk around the village almost on a daily basis, shouting slogans and wearing colors of the ruling party. As a precocious school student, Emma was expected to be a leader, but she was traumatized by the physical and emotional stress of the experience. In fact, anti-government protests broke out when Emma was still in school, in the capital far, far away from where Emma lived. In her school, every day for an hour in the morning and for an hour in the evening, the school relayed government news from the capital that the pictures of protests and videos of protesters being stopped by police were fake news, that the protesters were in fact attacking the police, and that the protests were supported by the US. Emma, being the child that she is, believed all of that. It was only after Emma immigrated to the US in the early 2000s for her PhD program did she realize the extent of the misinformation that she and her family had consumed over her young life. The lies, as Emma says, were astounding. She spent a large part of her graduate school years understanding what had actually happened in her country back when she was young and separating the lies, as Emma says, that she had been fed from the actual reality. Emma said that this continues to be a shock and traumatic experience to her even today. I spoke to Emma about gender disparity and sexism in the US because Emma was precocious as a child, she says that early on she didn't really notice the absence or lower number of women in math and science in her home country and around her. Nowadays, though, she is very mindful of the gender disparity in computing and computer science. 
She noted that often when a major breakthrough occurs or a major project is funded, including in her case, the women scientists, even if they are some of the leaders in the project, are often given less credit for the success and more success is attributed to their male collaborators on the project. This usually happens in media articles. This happens not just in her home country, but also in the US. I spoke with Emma about racism in US universities. Alas, it does exist. Emma recalls that even in the US, there was a professor in her PhD institution who during his office hours wouldn't talk to any of the international students. Emma's PhD advisor stood up for the international students and complained about this faculty. And this made Emma feel at home. Though, alas, it didn't really change the other professor's behavior. Emma respects her advisor for this. Emma also liked how flat the graduate programs and research groups were in the U.S. universities. If you as a student didn't really get something done in a week, you just said so to your advisor. You didn't have to lie or make something up just because you feared your advisor. Finally, I asked Emma about self-doubt and imposter syndrome. Her response was beautiful. Don't compare your weaknesses with others' strengths. Emma says it is only meaningful to compare yourself with your own past. That's the story of Emma, a leading academic who is a faculty at a U.S. university. This was episode 15 of the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast. You've heard multiple stories from anonymous immigrants and immigrant computer scientists. Their names and the dates I've used have been obfuscated to preserve their identity. If you haven't already done so, please listen to the previous segments in the show. We covered Yugoslavia in episodes 1 through 4, Brazil in episodes 5 through 8, the Middle East in episodes 9 through 12, US Virgin Islands in episode 13, and China in episode 14. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes from the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast as we visit other parts of the world. All the music used in episodes of the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast is royalty-free. All voice recordings were performed with and are reproduced with full consent of narrators and participants. You can find music credits on our website. Join the online discussion about this podcast on all major social media, including Twitter and Facebook, with the handle CSImmigrant and hashtag CSImmigrant. And of course, the episode guide is available at our website, csimmigrant.org. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast.